0: In this episode, we speak with Eric Dawson, founder and CEO of Rivet, which channels the collective economic power of young people to fund their work as social innovators. Young people control over $3 trillion of spending power and are hungry for authentic avenues to express their values. Meanwhile, brands are hungry to connect to young consumers. Combine those two facts and add in the tremendous energy driving the youth social change movement, and you have Rivet. Prior to Rivet, Eric co-founded Peace First as a freshman at Harvard, leading it to become a global nonprofit that now supports over 13,000 youth-led projects in over 150 countries. As an Ashoka, Echoing Green, and Pop Tech Fellow and best-selling author, Eric is a globally recognized expert on youth empowerment. I am your host, RJ Lumba. We hope you enjoy the show. If you like the episode, click to subscribe. RJ Lumba is the Managing Partner of GrowthCap and the Executive Chairman of Market Insight Media. He is the host of Growth Investor, a podcast featuring today's best investors, executives, and founders. In the minutes ahead, we'll uncover insights and strategies for accelerating growth and succeeding in business. Eric, so great to chat with you today. Thanks for taking the time. RJ, thanks for having me. I've been looking forward to this conversation. So, we were introduced by a mutual friend, Herman Sanchez. We'll give him a shout out on this. And the two of you have known each other for a very long time. I believe you met while you were students at Harvard, and you've pursued a very interesting path, I would say very mission driven with what you've been doing. One thing we ask many of our guests on this podcast is about a cause or charity or other endeavor that they feel very passionate about. This episode is a little bit different in that we are solely focusing on that cause, charity, or endeavor. This is something near and dear to my heart. It's something that I pursued earlier in my career, probably not dissimilar to others in our audience who maybe at one point were pursuing something more social impact or social oriented. And so let's go right into it. Tell us about yourself. Let's start there.
1: Well, thank you. You know, Harvard students talk about themselves is not hard. I was a super angry kid growing up, and that's probably one of the foundational things to know about me is I dealt with some stuff as a kiddo that just made me really angry about the world. And when young people experience violence in their lives, we tend to do one of three things. We, we hurt ourselves. So think, you know, unprotected sex, substance abuse, suicidal ideation. We hurt other people because in some twisted way, we're trying to seek justice or redemption. And some of us are lucky we become organizers. So that was me. I I started my first business when I was 10. It was a lollipop business where I'd buy blow pops for 10 cents and sell them for a quarter at at my elementary school. I grew up all over. I moved around a ton. Um, I started my first social change venture at 14. I began organizing my high school, particularly around inclusion issues. I went to huge public high school, 200 kids and all sorts of shenanigans going on. Got a scholarship to go to college, which opened up a lot of doors for me. And it was the heart of the youth violence epidemic in Boston. Young people were dying in astronomical numbers. And so I began with other students teaching young people how to be change makers. So rather than looking at young people as victims, we have to protect or perpetrators, we have to punish or the future, right? Some kind of potential blobs. understand that young people hold a lot of power. And so I started that at 18 I ran that for 30 years, uh, building the largest digital community of young changemakers across 166 countries. And RJ, I'm talking about young people who would blow your mind with their ideas. So I think about someone like Suheila who got poisoned by the drinking water at her school in Egypt and designed a water filtration system that uses garbage, literally, like eggshells, coffee grinds, that's just as effective as anything in the market, 80% cheaper, we gave her another grant to build a prototype for a village. She'll save two or three dozen lives from renal failure. Young people working on police violence in Baltimore, working on education opportunities in Morocco, you name it, tens mm-hmm. of thousands of teams of young people. And the one thing they have in common is they all live in capital deserts. Mm-hmm. They're part of the 85% of Gen Z who lives in places where they will never have access to philanthropic money. They, they've got no parent to get $250 from or a school. And there's no world in which a young person in rural Uganda or Suhail in rural Egypt as a 17-year-old girl gets access to anything. And so that's the problem that I want to fix, is how do we
0: solve that access issue? Got it. Great. We're going to spend a lot of time on Rivet. You know, I think one of the other relevant aspects to this episode is that we are talking about growth investing, maybe under a different lens. And then the other tie-in is that we're hoping that potentially some of the private equity firms or growth equity firms in our audience, maybe this message will resonate with them and they can see a way they can maybe play a role in what you're trying to do. I'd like to actually go back to your story again, because I think it's fascinating. Tell us about, obviously you have a great story getting into Harvard and then what you do once you get there.
1: Yeah. So Harvard was a complicated place for me, partly because I had to work. So I worked four jobs to get through school. I got a a scholarship. My parents contributed a little bit of money. I took out loans. And i had never been in a place with that kind of institutional wealth and individual wealth. I remember looking at one of my section lists and the dude didn't have a last name. He was just Prince Frederick. And I was like, I don't think I'm in Ohio anymore. And what I loved about Harvard and appreciate about Harvard is there are unbelievable resources that you had access to. And as long as you get a signature, like you could do just about anything. And so for me, being able to start an organization as an 18 year old with that kind of brand platform. So like writing notes to the Boston public schools and saying, hey, public school teachers, I want to come teach your kids about social innovation. If I was just a kid from my neighborhood back home, all those doors would have been slammed, but it Mm -hmm. was on Harvard stationery. And so I learned really early the power of not just financial capital, but social capital. Mm -hmm. And also what I like to call imagination capital, the sense that what I wanted to do was possible. And I was in a sea of possibilities. There were young people doing all sorts of cool stuff, whether it was in a lab or whether it was with music or theater, I was in a place where young people's students' ideas were taken seriously. And that's such a gift to be in that kind of environment. And so few young people have that. So my journey was really about starting with a three-week curriculum, growing into a semester-long curriculum, then a year-long curriculum, figuring out how to do evaluation, look at impact, how to raise money, how to hire a team. And this was all before I graduated. Now, the one thing I will complain about, Harvard, and it's gotten better, is... I really felt like a unicorn and I like those fun unicorns that raise a billion dollar valuation, but the unicorn that doesn't really exist. So I wanted to be an elementary school teacher when I went to college. And I was told by my main academic advisor that I was wasting my Harvard education, that teaching was beneath me. I could do policy work maybe, you know, there was pre-med coaching, there was pre-business coaching, pre-law coaching Nobody helped me apply to education school, which is what I did. I went and did a master's in education because I was running a nonprofit and I looked like I was 12. Like all those roadways, all those narratives did not exist at the university. I think things have gotten better, but you were expected to be an investment banker, go to professional school consulting, like, I don't know, maybe do a trip for three months if your parents were rich, but starting a social innovation, going into education, it was just the early stages of Teach for America and some of these efforts that really opened up what educationally privileged young people could see themselves doing.
0: Now, when we were talking previously, we were talking about the tremendous amount of energy that's being put forth by Gen Z and just the sheer number of these folks and how that could have a tremendous impact on the world with what they're doing, each of them playing a key role let's talk about some of those you mentioned some of them at the front of this conversation let's now talk about the mission of rivet so looking at gen z let's just look at numbers it's 1.8 billion humans on the planet
1: we worked with deloitte to study impact over the past 120 years i'm talking major regional global impact so from the workers' rights movement that created concept of a weekend to the Arab Spring, marriage equality, all these things that have shifted the world in positive ways, dozens of case studies. They had one through line, which is that every single one was powered by young people and more often than not created, envisioned, and led by young people. Young people are natural innovators. They're not the only generation that's innovative, but they're uniquely innovative because they're not stuck in silos of thinking. This generation are digital natives. They're building community all over the world and they wanna make a difference. So I'm a Gen Xer. When I was coming of age, if you look at the research, 12% of us wanted to make the world a better place with our jobs. For millennials, that number was 36%. For this generation, Gen Z, it's 60%. 60% of young people wanna change the world in a positive way. So think about 1.8 billion young people turned on and excited to do good. The other thing is, as we think about creating change, young people sit on a tremendous amount of consumer capital. So, as of 2020, Gen Z controls $3 trillion in consumer spending. That's trillion with a T. And as many of your listeners know, they are very different consumers. They will cancel or promote brands based on their social practices. They'll spend more, wait longer for products aligned with their values. You have a generation who doesn't just want to be consumers, they want to be citizens in the ways that they shop. So think about these as markets. So on one side, you've got 1.8 billion young people who want to change the world, but cannot access any sort of philanthropic marketplace, right? That's a misfunction. And then you have 1.8 billion young people who want to shop their values or sit on a tremendous amount of capital and don't know how to do that because a market's so fragmented. The idea behind Rivet is what if we could connect these two? What if we could help young people unleash the consumer capital they hold to fund their work as activists, innovators, and social entrepreneurs without a middle person who is controlling that, right? There's no Gates Foundation or whomever who's making those decisions, but young person to young person changing the world. So that's the idea behind Rivet.
0: I think it's tremendous. It's interesting. Like I, I know other executives in the financial world. Who 20 years ago or 30 years ago had worked in something like the Peace Corps or other NGOs that try to tap into these local economies to kind of foment activity and and growth. You know, I had worked with an NGO over 25 years ago, and we did try to go locally down in Latin America and help businesses. We had to first find them and then figure out how to help them grow and create jobs. This is, as you were saying, sparked by the digital transformation uh, we've all benefited from, and you can go directly to potential change maker. And these people are super talented, super driven. So can you give us some examples of what you've seen, maybe how your program has been put to work? That's right. And I'll explain
1: the model a little bit. So there are two things I love about our model. The first is it's really simple and everything we're doing has been done before. So, we're basically bringing together microfinance. So, think Grameen Bank, Donors Choose, Kiva, and cause related marketing. So, think Charity Water, Red, that Bono created, that's raised $880 million for the fight against HIV/AIDS. They've just never been brought together, never been brought together for young people. I and mean, if you listen to the narrative, there are no victims in this story. There's no kid with a distended stomach who needs your 35 cents from your Chipotle burrito to eat tonight. Everyone gets to be powerful, whether you're a young person buying a Rivet co-branded iPhone or you are starting a project to build a well in your community. Everyone gets to be a badass. The other thing I love about our model is we're not asking anyone to change their behavior. And that is key. So the value chain works like this. We partner with brands. Brands spend $650 billion trying to get your kids and my kids to buy stuff. We give them a better way to do it. So imagine a Pixar movie, a Spotify playlist, Adidas sneakers. When you buy a product or engage in a service with the Rivet logo on it, young people know that a portion of what they're spending is going to go out into the marketplace and fund other young people with cool ideas. So we get brands a better way to market. They get to connect with Gen Z in a way that isn't about charity, but really solidarity. And they get great content of impact. Young people buy what they love. We're not asking them to change their behavior. If you love Adidas shoes, buy Adidas shoes. Just choose the rivet Adidas shoe. And then those resources go out the door through a network of NGO partners with local credibility and local insights. So we're partnering with a 100 of the largest, most powerful NGOs. So think the Scouts, think the Red Cross, think Teacher America, all of those organizations that have spent billions and billions of dollars to build roadways into young people's lives. Like you think about the concept of last mile health, this is last mile philanthropy. So we use those networks to distribute funds and those NGO partners are desperate to have new ways to connect with young people. So they find the young people, they support them and they distribute grants. So micro grants, $250, $500 to get a project started. Young people do a cool innovation. Some will be scalable, some won't, some will fail, right? This is a venture model, right? We're planting a million seeds then we get those data back from our nonprofit partners. And what we then do, and this is where it gets very interesting, is we then turn those data into content. So if you're Adidas, we can give you something that no one else can give you, which is the power of telling local stories of impact at scale. Because think about what Adidas can do right now. They can tell the story if we gave 100 pairs of shoes to a school in Argentina, or we're ending global warming by 2050 right? It's either very specific, but small or big, but kind of vague in general. Now they can speak to any issue area in any geography. And the spokesperson are these young change makers themselves. So we give brands what they need more than anything else is authentic content of impact. And every time Adidas tells a story of a cool project in rural Columbia around employability and an eco bike tour that they helped fund it. And by the way, it wasn't Adidas, wasn't Rivet. It was their consumers, right? The heroes of the story are the kids who are shopping. They're building their brand relevance. They're building Rivet's brand equity. They're driving more sales, more partnerships, inspiring more young people to go out and change the world. So we create this flywheel of impact. We did one small pilot. We did a pilot with Beats and we did one with Funco. They make these collectible pops figures. We raised about a quarter of a million dollars. We funded a thousand projects through our partners at Peace First. A 1,000 projects across 66 countries, RJ, three quarters of those young people have lived experience with the problems they're solving. Think about that. They're solving homelessness because they've been homeless. They're solving hunger because they've been hungry, right? We're reaching those young people who need to be reached. And what our brand partners then get is that map of all the projects they funded, who those young people are and the impact, and then stories to share with
0: their customers. So we build that flywheel that grows and scales with every partnership that we have. And to make it a a little bit more tangible, just to understand the dollar flow, how would it work so if Adidas has on their shoe, you know, I think you have another way of explaining this through digital products as well, maybe a separate case study, but say on an actual product, if if one were to a CPG company were to put the Rivet logo on their product, and maybe that does spark some additional sales, How does it filter then through to your organization?
1: Every model's a little different. So some, like what we did with Funco, 100% of those sales went into Rivet. Others might be 10%. We're flexible with our brand partners. It just needs to be transparent. So everything is very clear, as is our business model. So we are set up as a nonprofit charity. We function as a consumer-facing brand. So it's a fun business model, RJ, to play with. But the way it works is Rivet keeps 10% of the revenue that comes in. That funds our overhead. 90% goes out the door to our NGO partners. They keep 10% for their cost of mentoring young people and tracking data. So 80% makes it in the hands of young people. So if you're a young consumer and you buy the Rivet co-branded Adidas shoes and you scan the QR code, you know exactly how much of your money is going where. You can see the projects that it's funding, and you can track them over time. Our goal, this is where I get goosebumps, so I want to just take a deep breath here. Our goal in the next 10 to 15 years is to raise somewhere between a quarter and a half a billion dollars to fund youth-led social innovation. Think about that number. Think about what half a billion dollars looks like. That is a million micro grants. That's a million innovators who right now are completely invisible. Now, some of those projects are small and will stay small, but somewhere in that million will be tens of thousands of game-changing ideas that will change the way that we live and love and work and take care of one another, take care of the planet. And they're coming from refugee camps in Jordan. And after a first round of funding, there's a second round of funding available, which is more like $2,000 or $5,000. And then a third round of funding, You know, which could be up to $100,000. Some of these are for profit ventures that we'll help get equity engagement with. Some will be not for profit. Some will be ideas and models that you and I couldn't imagine. The idea is we want to get that funding out in the marketplace. And I'll say this, and I say this with a little bit of humility, but it's important to say, particularly to your listeners, you know, there's a lot of talk about diversity, inclusion, equity. There's a lot of talk about building a pipeline, building a more inclusive economy. Because when we do that, everybody benefits. When we're leaving out 85% of the world's youth populations from the innovation space, even if your heart is hard as a stone, you want to see that changing. Because that's what's going to fuel growth in our economy, both in the social sector and the for-profit sector. This will be the single largest direct investment in that DEI work, that top of the funnel of young innovators that's ever been attempted. And that's really the goal here is to transform who gets to participate and how the world benefits from it.
0: Love the goal. You know, I think it is inspiring. What's most important now? So for folks in our audience, we have a mix of private equity firms, growth equity firms, also entrepreneurs and executives, you know, in terms of the stage you're at with Rivet. It seems like partnering with brands, getting access to like more brands to establish partnerships with, but then maybe also funding for your operations. You know, Maybe it takes a bit to implement some of these partnerships with brands. So I'll hand it back to you. What is most important to you now that would help catalyze further evolution in Rivet? So what
1: I love about our flywheel model is that it's a, it's a very conservative model in terms of energy. Everything supports everything else. The thing that's hard about a flywheel is you got to get it spinning. And it's that first getting it spinning that takes time. So we spent the past 18 months building the brand, building model, doing pilots. We have an amazing advisory group of brand leaders from Apple and Nike and Adidas and Netflix and Google. Everything is co-designed by young people. So we have a global group of youth designers. The delta between where we are now and the point in two years when we'll be financially sustainable by the revenue that's coming in is about five million. So over the next three years, the nut that I'm trying to crack is five million. And then we won't need philanthropic investment anymore because we'll be completely self-sustaining. What's gotten me interested in the private equity? I should confess, I, you know, I have a master's in education, a master's in divinity. You know, I had one job for 30 years. So the, the private equity space is not one that I've ever worked in. But the private equity, the growth equity is all about unlocking value, That's what sits at the heart of that work. And to me, Rivet represents that type of investment where we've got a great team, we've got an initial track record, we've got a clear plan, we're first in market. So Rivet will work. The question is, is it like a cute $10 million impact or is it a really powerful billion dollar impact? And that's all going to be determined by how well we launch our brand and get that escape velocity. And that requires funding. And so the idea about being a philanthropic partner with a private equity firm, and I mean, no disrespect when I say this, but I've talked to a number of firms and the stuff that a lot of firms do in in the philanthropy space is really unimaginable. It's like $25,000 for a table or $50,000 to the United Way. It's not strategic. It's not connected to business outcomes. It's not driving impact. And so we create the opportunity to be that impact player, to have a message around ESG, DEI, to the LPs, to your younger employees who really care about this work, and to do what you do for your consumer brand investments with a nonprofit investment to help us move from good to great and to really unlock the value in the platform. So We become your billion-dollar unicorn impact play that you get to brag, that you helped create. And then as as a cherry on top of this, we'll have relationships with a million young people. Think about those data, right? Think about that marketplace for brands in your portfolio, like being able, as you go to auction, to say to potential investments, like we're not only going to give you this sort of charity halo, but... Like you're creating a new product, like you can run it by Rivet's 10,000 influencers to see what they think. So there's a clear business case here. There's a clear moral case here. And then I think there's a fun strategic case here, which is to build
0: something in the same way you would build any other company. Right. I mean, I think the beautiful thing here is that whether you're an executive or an investor, if, if they were to be involved in Rivet, it benefits them not just because it checks the box on, ESG or DEI, but it also helps their business grow overall. Um, you know, it's almost like a 360 approach. LPs care about this. You know, those are the investors in the private equity funds. Executives care about it because they want to know they're working with a good firm, et cetera. So I think it's hitting on a lot of different relevant points. We're nearing the end of the conversation. I typically end with two questions. One related to a cause, but this was about a cause. And then the other is can you tell us about a person who has had a profound impact on your life? It's like
1: asking which of my children is my favorite. You know, I've had the privilege of working with a million young people over my career, all of whom inspire me. But there's one in particular. So, Wee Chen came to this country from China when he was 15, went to a large school in, in South Philadelphia got sucker punched in the back of the head on his second week of school. There was one day where 26 students were assaulted at his high school, all Asian immigrants. This young man who barely spoke a word of English against the wishes of his parents and a lot of his friends when he was getting ready to graduate, organized an eight-day boycott of his high school where he stood outside his high school saying, we're not gonna participate in a school that doesn't see us as human, that we've got a right to be safe in, in our school. At first, it was just him and a couple of friends, and then it was all the Chinese students and a pan-Asian group of students. And by the fourth or fifth day, hundreds of people were joining him. He filed a Justice Department lawsuit, which he won as a student, the first of its kind brought by a young person saying, we have a fundamental right to be safe in our school. His diary that he kept helped win the case, like who assaulted whom, what adult was sitting around laughing while it was happening got a new principal sensitivity training, helped turn the school around. And there are two reasons I, I wanna end with that story. One is young people change the world. They are not the future, they are the present, they are the now, and often in ways that we don't see and are surprising. The second thing is, as I wanna talk about courage, and I wanna thread this needle carefully because I mean no disrespect. I meet amazing young people who you know, raise a million dollars for orphans in Somalia or to feed 100 hungry families, which is great. But let's be honest, if, if your dad runs a multi-billion dollar hedge fund and you do a lemonade stand where 10 of his friends buy a thousand dollar glass of lemonade, you don't have to risk anything to make that happen. I want to speak to the courage of these young people that I meet. Imagine being in a country where you do not speak the language, where you're worried about the authority, where you're about to graduate in a couple of weeks. It'd be so easy, but to say, I'm going to stand out there and boycott. That's courage. And so I think about the young people that I get to meet who are really, in some cases, putting their lives on the line to change the world for all of us. And if your listeners, if we will not stand with those young people, with our resources, with our social capital, nobody will. And that is our job. I don't care what your day job is. We need to be standing with these young people who are risking themselves to build the world that we will grow old in.
0: Well, Eric, I want to thank you. This has been a wonderful conversation. I know I'm leaving this conversation very inspired by the work you're doing. So thank you and appreciate all the time you spent with us today.
1: Thanks, RJ. It's a pleasure.